Don't you just love Easter? I love Easter. The great thing about Easter, it's a little challenge, is to try and find a different passage every Easter to preach on. But it's a lot better than Christmas because there are a lot of passages on the resurrection. And so for this morning, we're going to be turning to Psalm 16, Psalm 16, where we are going to learn that your savior is not in the grave. I think most of us realize that we live in a world that is infested with evil. There's all sorts of dangers and trials and miseries. The world is speeding up at a frantic pace and technology is increasing and we just, you know, can't even figure out how to keep up with our new cell phone. It's just, it's just ramping up in this frantic pace and so is evil along with it. People are so busy trying to just keep up that they're not thinking about reality. Sin is on the rise, fornication, adultery, divorce, broken relationships, slavery to drugs, alcohol, pornography, homosexuality. They're destroying the country. They're destroying the world. People are exercising less and less self-control. They're losing the battle of morality, of biblical ethics. They run to the doctor because they're feeling anxious or angry or depressed. And the doctor says, oh, I don't see anything wrong with you. So go to the psychiatrist and he gives you drugs. The drugs just make you feel away. They just mask the symptom. They don't deal with the problem. The problem is still there. You're just drugged now. And so people are out there all cloaked with psychotropic medications and they have no purpose. They have no reason to exist. I mean, try it sometime. Go up to somebody on the street and say, why do you exist? And they'll look at you like, what? People don't think about why they exist. They want to have lunch. <laughs> They're hiding from reality in TV and video games and hobbies and food and pleasures. They just don't want to think about it. They just want to work, make money so they can have pleasure. So they don't have to think about why they exist. They check out because they don't want to take a serious look at their lives. The whole world is on this train and that train is headed for a chasm filled with eternal fire and no one even wants to look ahead to see where it's headed. And Satan is more than obliging to keep them distracted, to keep their minds off of reality so that, you know, watch some TV or play this game, do this entertainment, have fun. Yet consider the result of this kind of behavior. When we just kind of check out, when we don't want to get involved, when we don't want to take a stand on the truth. I read the paper sometime or, you know, the CNN website and just read it. And ask yourself, how many good, wholesome, wonderful things are here? Sometimes there's none. The world is an evil place. And if you stand up for the truth, if you stand up and say, the word of God says this, then instantly, you listen, you are intolerant. You're unloving. You're divisive. You're the hate monger. And the only good citizen is the citizen that tolerates Every kind of evil there is. That makes you a loving, acceptable, tolerant citizen. And this is fine. 
until the murderer shows up at your house in the middle of the night. Until the rapist rapes your daughter, or the pedophile defiles your child. Or the corrupt politician spends your tax money on some wicked thing. Then you're outraged, but you're not outraged because the creator and heaven and earth is not being glorified. That's where the outrage should be. We have a God who created us and he created us for a purpose. And the purpose is not just to check out with the pleasures of this world until we fall into hell. He saved us so that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. And this God is a perfect God. He is a holy God. He is a just God and he must punish sin. And this is bad because we're not just talking about axe murderers and serial killers. We're talking about anybody who deviates from the perfect holy standard of God's word in thought or deed to any degree. Because God is perfect, he has a perfect standard and none of us match up to it. The scriptures say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we're all guilty. We have all sinned. The Bible speaks of God's wrath abiding on unbelievers like this huge razor sharp guillotine that's just hanging over their head. And at any time God could just hit the lever and down it would fall on you and that would be the end of you. And you would then launch into eternal pain and suffering. And like it or not, the grim reaper of death is coming and he will harvest you. You will not escape. You will die. You hear people say things like, oh, yes, you know, so and so. It's so terrible. They have a terminal illness. How many people of you are not terminal? I want to know. The death rate is still holding at 100%. All of us are going to die. Now, you may be sitting out there thinking, oh, no, it's Easter Sunday. I don't come to church that often, and now I came, and the pastor's making me feel bad. I mean, this isn't going to be one of those downer sermons, is it? This isn't one of those times where I come in here, and he preaches a bunch of wrath on me, and then I leave feeling miserable. No. No, I'm not trying to make you feel depressed. In fact, I have the opposite agenda. But before you can feel the joy that God wants you to feel, and to have that gladness and that comfort, you need to realize you're in danger if you don't know Jesus. You you are in danger. You need to look ahead and see what's going to happen when you die. And know what's going to happen when you die. You need to just put aside all the distractions that Satan offers and this world offers. And you need to look up and say, oh, that's where I'm headed. And see the flames if you don't know Jesus. You will be judged according to his perfect standard. And there is only one way you can escape. And that is what Easter is all about. And that's what I'm going to tell you about this morning. God is holy. Yes, he is just. Yes, he must punish sin. Yes, but he's also loving. He's also compassionate and he's also very gracious. Now, that doesn't mean he can just ignore sin. He still has to punish all sin, but he's devised a way so that those who can't save themselves can get to heaven because of what God does for them, not what they do for God. 
So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to get one in the pew back in front of you and open it up because you, you'll want to see these. You want to actually see the words in the text and be able to see what God says to you from these passages because they're very encouraging. Now, as you find Psalm 16, if you don't know where it is, just open the middle of your Bible. You should be in the Psalms and then find the one that says 16. Now, David is the king of Israel who writes this. But David was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of eight sons and he was fine just shepherding the sheep. And so God called him to be the next king of Israel because the present king, King Saul, was wicked and evil. And so David was anointed, which is kind of a neat thing when God calls you to be king. The problem is, is Saul was jealous and he wanted to kill David. And so he kept trying to kill David. So all during David's earlier years, he's running from this maniac king. It'd be kind of like this. It'd be like this. It'd be like me saying, okay, uh, I just want you to know that after the service, you've got an hour. And after that, there's going to be seven CIA assassins who are going to chase you around and try and kill you. And you can't leave Southern California. And it's only going to go on for 15 years. That would be kind of stressy, wouldn't it? To think that every moment of every day someone could stab you or kill you or blow you up. It'd just be this incredible burden. You would fear for your life because, man, they're after you. And this is the exact situation we find David in in Psalm 16. He's, he's being chased. He's hunted by this maniac king who wants to kill him. And yet... In the middle of this psalm, he's able to have this incredible joy and peace and comfort. And so that's what we're going to learn about this morning as we look at Psalm 16, verse 10. But let me just read the whole psalm to you, and then we'll survey most of it and zero in on one verse. So look at verse 1 of Psalm 16 and follow along as I read. David says, Preserve me, O God. For I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Now this psalm has a lot of cool things in it. And I just wish we could just spend six months in there. But um, we're just going to look at verse 10 this morning. 
where you're going to see that there are two reasons every believer can have hope and be encouraged no matter what the circumstances, knowing they're going to die and knowing they're going to be thrust into eternity before a holy God. And that way you can have hope. Now, if you've ever flown in an airplane, you know, a big commercial liner, you're, you're way up there, you know, 30, 35,000 feet. And, uh, you know, you, if it's clear and you look down, you can see the earth, but you can just see mountain ranges and maybe little tiny squares, which are farmers fields and tiny little roads, but that's about it. You can't really get any details. Well, that's what we're going to do with most of the Psalm here. We're going to fly over to 30,000 feet and then we're going to circle land in verse 10. So here's the 30,000 foot survey. Look at verse one. David asked God to preserve him, which means to keep watch over or protect or to keep him from harm. He says, preserve me. Now I raised chickens when I was growing up and uh, every spring there would be these little, uh, you know, hens who would want to just kind of get the nesting instinct. And so they'd just be kind of clucking and they'd try and call other hens to come and lay eggs in their nest. And soon they would get this little brood of eggs and, and we would let a couple hens set on some eggs. And 21 days later, these cute little fuzzy peepers would come out. And they were so cold. They just looked like little fuzz balls with legs. And um, they would just go around and scratch in the dirt and copy mom. And they were really fun to watch. Well, it's interesting, though, is the mother hen would always keep her eye kind of tilted up looking for hawks. And if a hawk ever came within eyesight, she would make this little clucking noise and all those little chicks would just run underneath her and disappear under her wings and body. They just disappear. It was really cool. She just kind of hunkered down and that was it. They just all disappear. Well... This is the exact kind of thing that David is asking the Lord for when he says, preserve me. As a matter of fact, in another similar song, Psalm, another Psalm, which has the same theme of preservation in Psalm 57, verse one, David says, Oh God, be gracious to me for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Well, that is the long way of saying Preserve me, O God. So that is the theme of the whole song. It's about David looking for preservation, salvation, deliverance, protection from the Lord. Now, the whole rest of the psalm is David rejoicing and thanking God because he has great confidence that he will be preserved and he'll have the very preservation he hopes to have from this God of his. Now, when you look in verses one through four, David asks God to preserve him. He acknowledges that his hope is in God. Um, he, because he takes refuge in God, he trusts in God. He relies upon the Lord. He delights in the righteous. He doesn't delight in the wicked. In verses five through eight, David draws hope that he will be preserved by recalling the attributes and deeds of the Lord. He says the Lord is his inheritance. It is the Lord who supports him. It is the Lord who is always at his right hand to bless him. David blesses the Lord because God is his counselor. David expresses the joy and gladness that every believer has regardless of their circumstances and trials and even inevitably death. 
And he says in verse 9, and then we're going to start circling here to land on verse 10. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will dwell securely. Now think about that. Keep in mind, he's being hunted. Several times he's barely escaped from being run through with the sword. Armies have been chasing him. He's a fugitive in his own land. And yet he says, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh or my body dwells securely. How is that? Think of some of the best days you've ever had. You know, whatever it is. You know, maybe standing in a nice green meadow next to a trout stream full of wild trout. You've got your five-issue equipment and no one's there. There's no mosquitoes that day, by chance. There's forests all around and big snow-covered peaks in the distance and you're just... You remember that. Or maybe it's your wedding day when you're looking into your honey bunny's eyes. Then you're saying those vows and you just, I love you. And you remember that and it's just so sweet. Or maybe it's when your child was born and that little baby came out and you just thought, oh. And you just had that joy, that gladness, that rejoicing of heart. Whatever it is, just know that that's what David's talking about here. It's like the best day of his life, even though his life is constantly in danger. The word heart, when he says, my heart is glad, the heart is his thoughts, his mind, his emotion, everything that is him that is not physical. Then he talks about his glory, a word that is usually used of God when he says, my glory rejoices. This talks about his whole being, his whole dignity as a man, as a creature created in the image of God, as the king of Israel. He can, he's just, he's, everything about him that's good is rejoicing. And he even says that his flesh also will dwell securely. His flesh means his body. He's not even worried about physical harm, about the future of his body. He says, that's all going to dwell securely. Now, my question to you is, do you have this kind of hope? Do you have this joy and this gladness, this rejoicing of heart? Because you know for certain that God is going to preserve you and take care of you. And he's not going to abandon you. Or when you think of death, does it kind of scare you? Does it kind of terrify you? You know, I've seen people who, you know, just even thought they might have a terminal illness and were just terrified. Because they didn't have this hope that David had. They just thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. That was it. I'm going to die. I have news for you. You're all going to die. Everybody dies. Life is terminal for everybody. And yet you don't have to be terrified at death. I mean, you could be like David. Look at verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. I mean, David is just... He's just oozing with joy because he has just this incredible hope and this, this, oh, I'm going to be in God's presence and just enjoy his pleasures forever. 
Now, does that describe your feelings and your thoughts? You might be thinking to yourself right now, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? Well, we're going to find out from verse 10. The first is you can escape eternal death. Remember verse 9, David has just said, you know, his, his heart, his glory, his flesh are rejoicing. They're glad. They're going to dwell securely. Why is that? He gives us two reasons. Verse 10, and the first reason is you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, I would imagine that if we took a little poll here, most of you have probably not used the word Sheol lately, unless you're in Hebrew class. Um, it's just not a word we use a lot. But this is what it means. It means the grave or the place of the dead. The New Testament equivalent is Hades or Hades. The, the New Testament takes the Greek equivalent of the mythology term that was used at the place of departed spirits. And they use that as a substitute for Sheol. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, Sheol is just the place of the dead, the, the grave. And notice what he says here. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, what does this word abandon mean? Well, um, you know, most of us have those little plastic containers under our sink. We throw trash in there. And when it gets full, we hopefully our kids will take it out after several reminders. And so they take it out and they throw it into the bigger trash can. Now, do you ever think, I wonder how my trash is doing? <laughs> you know, I, I wonder how my trash is doing now at the dump with all those big pieces of equipment rolling over it and crunching it into the big trenches. Do you ever think that? Not unless you accidentally threw away your diamond ring. <laughs> but this is the whole idea here. David says, I don't have to worry about the Lord trashing me, dumping me, forgetting about me. So he's not thinking about me anymore. I don't have to think about that. I know he's not going to abandon me. He says, and he uses the word soul here. Now, sometimes you might think this word soul is talking kind of about the heart, the non-physical part of you. But actually, this is the same word that appears in Genesis 2.17 when God creates man, forms him out of the death, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. The Hebrew word is nephesh. It means a total person, both physical and immaterial, everything you are. And so David says, God is not going to abandon everything that I am to the grave. He's not going to forget about me and then turn his back. David has full confidence of this. The question is, do you have full confidence in this about your future? Do you know for certain that God will not abandon you? I think most of us probably know about C.S. Lewis and his series, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, um, the first book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was recently made into a movie. But in the book, there is the climax of the book is this huge battle scene. And in the battle scene, there is the forces of the white witch who are fighting against the, the good forces of the lion king, Aslan. And there's this huge, terrible battle. Leading the forces of Aslan against the forces of the evil white witch are 
Peter and Edmund and Lucy and um, Susan, these four uh, children who entered into Narnia through the wardrobe. Earlier, they had all received special gifts from Father Christmas. And the littlest one, Lucy, receives this little tiny bottle of serum that kind of looks like blood. And she's told by Father Christmas, you need to save this because if you take even the smallest amount and put it on the lips of anybody who's hurt to any degree, they will be healed instantly and restored to perfect health. Now think about that. Wouldn't it be cool just to have, you know, a person who is always with you to make sure that if you ever got hurt, they could give you some magic serum? Well, guess what? There is somebody like that. William Cooper talked about it in his famous hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Isn't that great? There is a serum. It's the blood of Christ. And when it is implied to the guilty who deserve to suffer eternal death, it heals them completely and forevermore. John Calvin commenting on this psalm said, quote, No one truly trusts in God, but he who takes such a hold of the salvation which God has promised him as to despise death. You're in an alley. Some thug comes with a gun and says, give me your money. He says, oh, please kill me. Do me a favor. I can't wait to get to heaven. I mean, so many of the martyrs in church history just went boldly to the stake to be burned. Because they just thought, oh, they're going to do me a favor. They're going to send me into the presence of my Savior where I am going to experience eternal joys. We read about Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer, who, when she was sick, she asked the doctor, am I going to die? (laughs) She was so excited at the prospect of death, she couldn't wait. And when they said, no, not quite yet, she was kind of depressed. (laughs) Why? Because she had the same hope that David had. She knew where she was going after she died. John Calvin continues saying, how empty a consolation would it be to obtain some brief respite and to take breath or a short time until death coming at last should terminate the course of life and swallow us up without any hope of deliverance, end quote. I mean, so what? You get delivered from some temporary thing. So what that you get healed from some momentary sickness? What about eternity? It is pitiful. It is pitiful and heart-wrenching when I have to do a funeral or a memorial service for someone who didn't know Christ and a family who doesn't know Christ. And there I am trying to give them hope. And what hope is there? There's none for the person who died. And the family is just weeping uncontrollably because they've lost this person and they will never see them again. And they're just in agony. 
and I talk about death and I can just see the looks on some of their faces. Uh, the death and the family has confronted them with death and they can't escape it. I mean, they're at a funeral. And when I mention death, I just see some of them. They just look like terrified animals. Like I've got to get out of here. I don't want to think of death. Well, that's not the solution. Death is still coming to everyone. The solution isn't to check out and I don't want to talk about it. But David had a hope. He had a hope in the face of death, a glad hope, a rejoicing hope, a praising God hope, because he knew that he was going to be in the presence of God and enjoy God's pleasures forever. But how, you ask? How can you have this hope? How can you know for certain what is going to happen to you when you die? If you look out the train window and you see you're going into hell, how do you get off the train? And that's what we learn in verse 10, the second half. Your Savior is not in the grave. Look there. David gives the second reason. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now notice David refers to someone who after dying would not undergo decay. And he calls this person the Holy One. God's Holy One. Now, we all know that in the last centuries and the last millennia, everybody who's died, they've all undergone decay, except for one. Except for one. You see, David wasn't talking about himself. First Kings 2.10 says David was, died, was buried, and laid in a tomb in the city of David, Jerusalem. His body rotted and his body decayed. But this whole hope of joy, the whole hope of gladness, all of his rejoicing hinges upon this second half of verse 10. He's able to rejoice and then everything he says in verse 11, all this incredible pleasures and rejoicing and in the prayer, all of that is because of the second half of verse 10. God's not going to allow his holy one to undergo decay. Now, who could this be? I think we all know. But let's let Peter tell us. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. That is one of the pilgrim feasts where Jews from all around the Mediterranean basin would come to worship the Lord in Zion. It's the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. What's interesting is, is the 12 apostles are given this miraculous ability to speak in languages other than those that they know. And so then all of these people speaking all these different dialects from all over the Mediterranean basin have come and each one is hearing the gospel being preached to them in their own native tongue by a miracle of God. Some who are looking on hear all these different languages and they think the guys are drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk. It's the Holy Spirit. And he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and follow along. Peter's still preaching. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. 
This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, notice, David says of who? Of Jesus. David says of Jesus, and then guess what Peter quotes? Psalm 16, 8 through 11. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Did you see that? David was speaking of Jesus when he was talking about that holy one who would not undergo decay. Now look at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, and he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Now you know how Easter fits into Psalm 16. I mean, it is the Easter psalm. The entire psalm, the whole business of hope and joy and rejoicing in the face of death hinges upon the second half of verse 10, that God had this holy one that he would not allow to undergo decay. Now, if you're thinking, well, are you sure that's what David was talking about? Well, let's see what Paul says. Turn over to Acts 13. If Peter's testimony isn't enough, inspired by the Holy Spirit, let's look at Acts 13. Paul is on his first missionary journey. He is in Pisidian Antioch. It is the Sabbath day. In verse 16, he begins to preach. He reminds them that the prophets predicted the Messiah's coming, his death, his burial, and resurrection. He says the Jewish leaders refused to believe this. They refused to acknowledge their own scriptures, and instead, they crucified their own Messiah. Just as God in prophecy predicted they would. Now, look at Acts 13, 32 and follow along as I read. Paul says, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children. And that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And what holy and sure blessing did David have? Well, look at what he says. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, now he's going to quote the holy, sure blessing of David. You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And what does he do? He quotes the text. That we're studying. That Jesus is that one. 
And so this time it is the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit who says Psalm 16.10 is speaking of Jesus. Look at verse 36. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not go undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. All the curses and all the judgments on those who didn't keep all the law. So Psalm 16.10 is the Easter Psalm. Now there's one other text where Psalm 16.10 is alluded to. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. And this is really great. Now, as you're finding 1 Corinthians 15, just so you know, if you've never studied the book of Corinthians, they were messed up. Uh, Some people call it the book of Californians, but... um, (laughs) It's it. They were messed up. I mean, about the book just taught. They were they were confused about everything. They were almost doing everything that could be done wrong, wrong. Paul got the churches started and then he left them. And then they kept writing these letters and false teachers came in and ah, they were messed up. And so Paul writes four letters to them, two of which appear here. He alludes to the other ones. And what's interesting is is that a false teachers got in there and said, well, the resurrection, there is no resurrection. And Paul, the apostle is like, ah, because the resurrection is one of those doctrines. You've got to believe. I mean, it's not one of those things. Well, you can believe in the resurrection, but I don't have to. Well, you don't have to, but if you don't, you don't get to go to heaven. It is a necessary doctrine. You have to believe if you're ever going to be saved from your sins. And so look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Paul then embarks on the longest chapter in the book, trying to make sure they understand the resurrection is true and gives all these arguments for it. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which means good news, which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand by, which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word, which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. I think, what? Let me summarize. One, there is a message of good news called the gospel. Two, that message is to be preached or proclaimed to people. Three, it is a message to be personally received and believed in. Four, you must stand upon, rely upon, trust upon this message. Then the lip service doesn't cut it. Saying, oh, I believe in giving intellectual assent to the facts. Don't cut it. You must stand on, rely on, trust on, put your full weight in these truths that are contained in this thing, this good message called the gospel. And five, if you hear, receive, and stand on the truth of the gospel message, you will be saved. That is, you will be saved, delivered, preserved from eternal death. You will not go to hell. You will go to heaven where you are experiencing joys and pleasures in the presence of God forever. Now, the question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, he just happens to tell us. Look at verse 3. Paul says, for I deliver to you as of first importance, what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, that's the first part of the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That is, he took your sins upon himself and he died in your place as a substitute for you. The scriptures Paul refers to here are the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 1610 does imply the death of the Messiah, but other texts make it perfectly clear, like Isaiah 53, where it talks about the Messiah being led like a lamb to the slaughter who would receive stripes for our healing, who would be crushed for our iniquities so that he could offer himself up as a guilt offering to God so that we could go free. But look at verse 4. The rest of the gospel is, and that he was buried... And that he was raised on the third day, and here it is, according to the scriptures. What scripture is that? What scripture does it say that Jesus would be raised from the dead? Psalm 16.10. That's the only one. And if you... Don't believe that message. You aren't a Christian. You aren't going to heaven. Paul said this in Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Not you might be saved. You will be saved. And then... You will have joy. You will have gladness. You will have pleasures forever in the presence of God. Think about it right now. What if right now, I mean, there's a lot of doors in this room. Look at them all. You know, the fire marshals just give us problems when building buildings. You know, you can all escape out of here in 30 seconds. What if through each one of these doorways, two terrorists came in with machine guns and just started shooting everybody? Men, women, children, just killing us all. And that would be pretty desperate because there would be nowhere to flee, right? All the doors are blocked. And so you just have to sit there in terror waiting for the bullet to pass through your head or your heart and take you out. You think, wow, that's not a very good thought. That's kind of frightening. Well, I want you to know that if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're in a lot worse situation than the one I just described because God is a loving God and when he opens the door and says this is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through me and you won't take that door there is nothing to hope for but death The great thing is, the door's there. It's wide open. And God says, believe, and you will be saved. He commands you to believe. The scriptures say God is commanding all men everywhere to repent, because there's coming a day when he will judge the living and the dead. This is what Easter is all about. God had Christ come to earth to die. And to be raised again. And don't give me this, I'm too great of a sinner. No, you're not. Well, you don't know what I've done, but I know what 
God knows about you. I know that God knows all your sins. And I know that while you were yet sinner, Christ died for you. Your sin is not greater than God's grace. And he will save you no matter how much you've sinned and know how long you've sinned. And if you're sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, oh, yes, but, you know, I don't want to get, I don't want to get all religious right now. I, I'm enjoying my sin and I haven't picked my spouse yet. And, you know, I kind of want to have control for a while. And then later, you know, after I've kind of lived my life for myself, when I'm on my deathbed and they've got that air hose down my throat and the doctor says, it's only a matter of hours. You say, okay, God, you can save me. No, you don't know when you're going to die. The only people who know when they're going to die are people who are on death row and their death is scheduled. And sometimes they die before that. You could die of a heart attack right now where you're at. You could die of a brain aneurysm. I had a cousin, 26 years old, triathlon athlete, putting ornaments on the Christmas tree. And she just said, oh, and fell down dead. That could be you. That could be you. You can't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Today is to run to Christ. And this is what Easter is all about. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what hope would we have? You know, God says, oh, by the way, um, you're going to die. Yes. They're going to put your body in the grave. Yes. And it's going to decay. Yes. But I want you to know, you'll be raised up. And you're thinking, sure, sure, I will. That happens all the time that uh, the dead live again. And you would just have to believe this incredible thing that never happened before based off of what? And so what God did to be gracious to you is he made sure Christ was crucified publicly, killed publicly, stuck in a solid rock tomb. Wrapped up with a lot of linens and spice. With a very large stone rolled over it. Dead three days. Just to make sure. Before raising him from the dead. So that you would know. I don't care what happens to me in this life. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, I'm going to go into the grave. But there's going to be a day. With the trumpet of God. And the voice of an archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And they're bodies will be reassembled and glorified into the same kind of body Christ had reunited with their spirits and they will enjoy the presence of God forever and ever because of what Jesus did because he overcame death and so if you've never repented of your sins if you've never received Jesus Christ the risen Lord you need to do it man what are you waiting for you waiting for a better day this is the day I mean we got y'all primed up with songs I mean, this is a good text here. Hear what God's saying to you. He will save you now. He will change your life. He will forgive you and make you so you can go through any circumstance and say, listen, go ahead and kill me. I'm going to be in the presence of God. I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have gladness. And it's unshakable and you can't take it from me. Sometime in the early 1930s, there was a man named Alfred Ackley. He was an evangelistic preacher. He was approached by a student after one of his evangelistic sermons. The student came up to him and kind of defiantly said, 
So tell me, why should I be worshiping a dead Jew? And when he said that, Ackley just had this moment of passion, this moment of clarity, and he said, he lives. I tell you, he is not dead, but lives here and now. Jesus Christ is more alive than ever before. I can prove it by my own experience and the testimony of thousands. And he was so distraught that he had been preaching and preaching And he never, there were people out there who weren't clear that Jesus was alive, that he then decided to preach a sermon called, He Lives. And so that's what he did. And then after he preached that sermon, he thought, this isn't good enough. I I have to make this clear. And so he sat down and he wrote this hymn. And in this hymn, as I read the words, notice that He expresses the same joy and gladness that David expresses in Psalm 16. These are the words. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever man may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. In all the world around me, I see his loving care. Though my heart grows weary I never will despair. I know that he is leading through all the stormy blast. The day of his appearing will come at last. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ, the King. The hope of all who seek him, the help of all who find none other is so loving, so good and kind. And then the chorus, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I hope that today before you leave here, you can say that. I know he lives in my heart. God wants to give you joy, peace, and gladness, even in the face of death, because he is risen. He is risen indeed. You got it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for your goodness to us, and thank you for this psalm. And Father, just the little New Testament text, which help us understand it a little better. Father, we are so grateful that we serve a risen Savior, that he's in the world today. That, Father, any sinner can be plunged beneath the fountain of his blood and come out clean. There is that magic serum, which is the blood of Christ. And when we come by faith, believing he will save us, he changes us. Father, I pray for anyone here who is fearful of death, who doesn't have perfect confidence and peace about the future, that you would save them and give them that confidence. Make them have joy. Help this Easter be the greatest Easter they've ever had because it was the Easter they came to Christ, received him, and were saved. For the rest of us, may we spend today, this next week, and all eternity rejoicing and glad because we serve a risen Savior. He is not in the grave, but he is risen indeed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.